Uh, you can now take with me uh, your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6 this morning. In fact, maybe you could start in John chapter 1 and we might give a little bit of a catch up to where we have been as we've marched through the book of John. But before we do that, let's go and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we do thank you this morning for the time that you have given, the privilege it is to look to your word. Thank you that you have revealed to us uh, what your will is, Lord, even as we look to what it is to believe, as John's message has been over and over again, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God, and that he explains and demonstrates through the life of Christ how evidently true that is, not only through the miracles, but even just through who he is. And we're even going to see more of that this morning. And we just thank you for our time and pray this would honor you and that your word would be clear. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we look at John chapter 6 this morning, it's a good example of, I think, expository preaching and of consecutive exposition. And if you're not familiar with those terms, just saying, uh, explaining a text, exposition, um, hopefully expositional preaching is when the, the preaching demonstrates that what is in the text is the main message of that text becomes the main message of the sermon. But also one thing that it practically does is it gets you to look at everything that God has said, because there are certain passages that are easier, and there are certain passages that are harder, and by human nature, we all like things that are a little easier. You know, they make the big joke a few years ago with Staples, they had the big, of course, Staples even exist anymore, you know, I don't know. But it was funny at the time, the little red button, you press the easy button. Uh, We can tend to do that in our own lives, where we like to look at certain passages that we know well, that we understand, and we avoid passages that are harder, that ask harder questions. One thing about preaching the next verse is you can't avoid that. And so you're going to have to preach easier passages and harder passages. And I'd say within John chapter 6, you have both of those things. I don't think it's that hard in one way, because he's just right back to his main point, which is John chapter 20. I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that you might have life eternal. That's his main point. But he does so with lots of kind of metaphors and pictures, well-known ones, like Jesus is, says, I am the bread of life. And we have to piece all of that together. And then even one more difficult saying, not only that it's the Father who draws, we'll take a similar John chapter 3, but also even as Jesus talks about eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood, it's going to confuse those in John chapter 6 to the point where even we're going to see it's difficult and they're going to walk away. And, but we have to deal with it because it's what the text says. And I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't shy away from explaining difficult things. And we may not uncover and may not explain to you, you know, uh, your desire that the most uh, clearest explanation, but we have it here. And we can explain, I think, at least to the point that the scriptures are clear. So we've been in the Gospel of John. And as I said, John chapter 1 is so important, the prologue that we went through now, it's been weeks ago, of this book, because it's back to the beginning. And this Christmas story in John is theological. He doesn't start in the manger. He starts with before time. Go back to John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. I know it's been a while, but we looked and we highlighted that throughout John, not only this idea of Jesus being God, that he is the Word, 
which 14 kind of gets more explicit. The word became flesh, that as Christ, the God became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory and his glory as the only begotten, that is the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. But also even how those first five verses, those are key things, life. Because everything's gonna be here about I want to give life. And we've seen kind of different pictures of that so far in John. I think it's important in six to understand we've seen John chapter three and saying you must be, that required, same kind of language here. The Father must draw. Um, there, there's no exceptions you must be born again in John chapter three. How do you do that? You do that by believing. We're gonna see some of those sovereign elements. And by sovereign, I mean just the supreme authority that God's in control, that he's the decisive factor in salvation. It's not to say we're unwilling. It's simply to say he is the decisive factor. That is the spirit being that picture of regeneration blows like the wind. John chapter three, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. That is, this is something God does that we don't know even how or when he's doing it. But he does so at his own will because he's God. He used the language of Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 9. God is the potter and we are the clay. But that idea of using these material pictures of birth and bringing out spiritual truth pretty consistent in John. See that in John chapter three? You must be born again just like a natural birth. You must be born not from flesh, but from above. John chapter four, the woman at the well, another well-known story. He says, you must have water that is living water. And of course, there the woman at the well thinks, this is water that I'll never thirst again. Give it to me. And she doesn't quite understand what Jesus is offering. And the same is true in John chapter six. They don't quite understand what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. I think towards the end, they probably have a better grasp and there is probably clarity where unfortunately in John chapter six, it is that continuation of chapter um, five, six, and seven where overall there's a rejection of Jesus. So they start to have a better understanding, but they still reject and they're kind of come up with excuses as we'll see here in a moment. But the immediate context, so now if you're following along, John chapter six, we're gonna see the well-known story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 we saw a few weeks ago. And he picks up on then a discourse and talking then when he crosses the sea that he is the bread of life. And they would have known of this miracle and they would have understood what he was saying. He provided food and he's gonna provide saying, I am not food that you eat day in like manna in the wilderness that Israel had received, but manna that is from heaven. And he's gonna build on that argument as we come down to verse 41 this morning because it kind of changes. And you look at uh, verse 59, it says, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So it seems to be this is kind of probably a summary of his teaching at the synagogue. And they're asking questions and he's giving clarification and particularly they're grumbling based on the speech that 26 through 40 that we saw last week that Jesus says, and this is one of five times throughout this whole discourse or 58 verses, where he is gonna say, I am the bread of life five different times. You can't miss it. What does he mean that he is the bread of life? And that is gonna be the further explanation here. He's gonna take a very ordinary, everyday example of bread, water, the kind of the basic things that you need for life. He's gonna say, I am those things and extrapolate spiritual truth. So briefly this morning, we wanna look at this section where he describes the necessity 
of why don't they understand? Because this is helpful as readers. Why is there rejection? If he's God, how can people reject him? Well, because there's something going on. They're, they're moving towards something where the rejection of Jesus is actually going to lead to the salvation because the rejection will lead to his crucifixion. That's partially what's going on, but also there's just a bigger picture here. Was that they don't understand because at this point you see the father is not drawing. The wind isn't blowing as it were. And he's going to explain that to them in this way. And we're going to see the necessity of this divine sovereignty in salvation and also see how belief leads to eternal life. And so in that way, you're going to see the decisive factor in God's work, his regenerative work in the heart, him choosing, and this is huge. I'm going to dip into next week a little bit. If you go to verse 70, he says to the 12, because everyone else at the end of this thing is going to walk away. He's going to look to the 12. Do you also want to go? Verse 67, Peter's going to say, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus is going to say, did I myself not choose you, the twelve. And then he's going to mention Judas, that yet one of you is the devil. One of the twelve is going to betray him. And I think you're going to see this kind of wraparound picture of at the feeding of the 5,000, why there's there 12 baskets, 12 baskets remain. Uh, the twelve at the end are going to remain. Why? Because he chose the twelve. Just very similar when Peter declares Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, you didn't, this isn't something from you. This isn't revealed to you from flesh, but this is something the Father has revealed to you. So there's all of this kind of going on into this background. We're going to see that those, from God's perspective, that come, he's going to keep. And we saw that 37 through verse 40. But we're going to see this background drop of what do you do with the grumbling, the complaining, which I think is a mask for unbelief. And Jesus is going to describe this necessity of divine sovereignty in salvation. Again, by sovereignty, I simply mean supreme power or authority. That is, he's in control of this. You wonder, because Jesus is not gaining followers at the end of this, he's losing them. Is this according to the will of the Father? And the answer is yes. There is purpose in this, and he is not in one bit out of control. He's in control of all of this. In fact, it is necessary. But look down at verse 41 and verse 42. You're going to see that there is unbelief described or disguised as grumbling. It says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, we've seen that term before. The Jews, probably likely the leadership or maybe even just kind of the audience of the synagogue from verse 59. But they're grumbling and they're complaining over this phrase. So they're not stumbling over so much the issue of God saving. Their, their issues with Jesus himself. The issue is, do they believe he's the son of God? And they have a problem because they start to know what he means by the I am the bread of life or I'm, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. It's that issue of where has he come from? Chapter one, the word was in the beginning, right? And their issue is, verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they ask the simple question, listen, I know your mom and I knew your dad. How can you be from heaven if we know you were born? We know you're from this town, Nazareth. And they're grumbling and they're complaining. And it all is, though, a reason they're going, we don't want to believe. Because you could go the other way and you could go back to the feeding of the 5,000, for example. It seems pretty miraculous. He's able to take 
a few fish and a few loaves and create out of it enough food for tens of thousands of people. But they don't want to believe. They're simply going, but what we see with our eyes, how could you be from heaven? That's their issue. We know your parents. And ultimately, this is just a hard thing to believe. Verse 6, he's going to describe it. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And there's a moment like Nicodemus where maybe they don't understand. I think probably by the end of this, they have a pretty good grasp of what he's saying and they're going to reject him saying, we kind of know what you're saying. You're saying you're associating yourself with God from being from heaven and this, this just can't be because we know where you are from. It's just hard to believe. And again, dipping into what we won't go into this morning, verse 65 Ultimately, they're going to say, for this reason, I have said to you, Jesus says to them, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And so he goes back and simply says, there is one way. And the reason you're not believing is because it has not been granted to you by the Father to believe. So it's not a surprise at all. What is going on at this point? But he further explains and gives the answer. Verse 43 through verse 48, his answer to that grumbling, to that complaining, to we know your Father, we know your mother. He simply says, verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We've seen this before. He ties the, the resurrection to believe here. He's going to do it very similar. Um, later on here, verse 54, he who eats my flesh, drinks my blood as eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. He's saying the issue here is ultimately going to be one of belief. And if you believe, you will be raised. That is the connection. But more than that, he emphasizes here that no one comes unless the Father draws. That the decisive factor, the initiation comes from the will of the Father. There's no one. There's, there's no exceptions. Uh, this is the exclusivity of things that he draws. This idea of this word, draw, and you have this question of what does this mean? And I would say there's not a ton of clarity overall other than you understand it's the simplest picture that he's pulling them in. Maybe it's helpful to look at a few other passages, even say for one in John, John chapter 21. This, this word is not a uh, weak word. It's a very strong word for draw or to haul or to drag. It's used here in John chapter 21, verse 11, that Simon Peter went up, drew the net to the land. That idea of he dragged it full of large fish, although there were so many, the net was not torn. And so when we think he's drawing, he's pulling, it actually has a stronger term for hauling and dragging. He's pulling them in. The father, when he draws, he's going to draw those in and they're going to be his. Why? Because he is the sovereign one. But even more so, say the same kind of language here, Acts 16, verse 9, because the little girl is healed. They're trying to make money off of her. And when they're mad, because they're no longer going to make money because of probably demonic activity in Acts 16, when her master saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Same word there in at least the Greek, dragged. So he's drawing, the idea of dragging and hauling. He's saying, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws or drags him. He's saying, it's very strong. And when the father does that, this idea of irresistible grace, it's going to happen. He's going to come. And then you go back to verse 37, you see the unbroken golden chain. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. You see it over and over again throughout this gospel, this divine sovereignty that he pulls. But at every single turn, you see, and you see the emphasis 98 times, believe is mentioned in the gospel of John. Right there with it is the responsibility to believe and the promise, verse 37, that if you come, he will never cast out. And again, you look at fine sovereignty, human responsibility. We have to acknowledge that they're both here but I think one thing is clear, and it's going to be made even more clear as we look at John 6, is where's the decisive act? And I think you have to say it's clearly decisively in the Father's hand and the way that he draws. How does that look in one's life? The Lord seems to use his spirit. The spirit gives life. See John chapter 3, even down to verse, 40, uh, verse 63 of chapter 6, the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. And so it seems to the way the spirit works in someone's heart and the life, the regenerating of the heart, then one responds to the call, the messages, the gospel is preached. But even then, it's interesting as well. It's done in a certain way. And he references Isaiah 54, and he does so through it. It's interesting. Some level of it would seem teaching. How does the father draw? Well, verse 45 is somewhat instructive. He says, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. This is uh, kind of a reference to Isaiah 54, 13, that all your sons will be taught of Yahweh or the Lord. The peace of your sons will be great. And he says, so let me explain to you. The prophets told you, Isaiah told you, they shall be taught not by a teacher preacher, but they'll actually be taught by God himself. He goes on, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So something God does that God teaches, I think this is probably a reference to regeneration, and not everyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, who he, that is Jesus, has seen the Father. Now what I find most interesting about that is Isaiah 54 follows, not a shocker, right? Isaiah 53. And you may know Isaiah 53 well because it is such a kind of classic messianic psalm. Think of Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. This is all about the suffering servant which looks forward to Christ who suffered for us. He's smitten by God. He's afflicted. But he, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, was pierced through our, or was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and the chastising for our peace fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed that is he takes our punishment for us all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him so there's that whole story that all well, like really prophecy in Isaiah 53 of what Jesus is going to do the Messiah is going to come and bear the sin of his people and then what follows is that promise, that atoning work that happens in broadly the restoration of Israel, but broadly in this new covenant work where they shall be taught by God. I think a direct reference to Israel, but even I think as you'll see some of those tie-ins for the church as well. This new covenant that comes that he, Jesus is going to inaugurate in his blood, even as we celebrated last week. 
but he does so, why? Because he is able, because he is the one who, chapter one says, narrates or reveals God, why? Because he's the one who has seen him. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, why? Because God is spirit, except the one who is from God, who has seen the Father. Again, this uniqueness of Jesus, uniqueness of his role within the Trinity, that he can relate to us uniquely because he is the word that became flesh, that dwelt among us. It's about believing what Jesus has done. That's the issue, not what we have done, our good works or our good deeds. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now you might think, is that a good answer to verse 42? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary? Well, it's Jesus' way of getting back to the main point, which is, here's the issue. Do you believe me? You believe I am from heaven. Do you believe what you see as far as what I've demonstrated in my works and what I've said with my words? And he simply says again, I am the one from above. I'm the one who's seen the Father. Of course, only one from above could have. Truly I say to you, who believes has eternal life. And yet again says, that's what I mean when I say I am the bread of life. What kind of bread is this? This is different. This isn't simply the bread that you have for a day and goes bad or that molds and gets old. He's talking, of course, about something that is spiritual. And he's going to explain how this happens. How is he the bread of life? And it's through what's kind of referenced, really, I think, there in 54, that back to 53, through his atoning death. He's going to demonstrate how belief leads to eternal life. It's belief in what he has done. He goes on to explain further. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. It's a reference back to earlier in this section. We covered last week, verse 31. They actually look to Jesus and they say to him, we want a work, right? They said, our fathers saw manna that came down from heaven each morning. What are you gonna do? Because they want more bread. Verse 26, after feeding of the 5,000, I say to you, you seek me, Jesus says to the crowds, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. filled. So the issue is they're there seeking these physical things. Jesus comes back to what they said and he reiterates. Listen, you, you mentioned your fathers. You mentioned them eating manna, which you can see the reference, right? Jesus provides food for them. They're saying, well, Moses provided food. He says, one, you got it wrong. God provided food through Moses. You put too much emphasis on Moses, which I think is an issue here as well. But they're looking to Jesus and he's saying, you're right. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they got it every day. They lived for a while, some longer than others. I'm sure like every society but they also come to the reality of the ultimate statistic is that they all lived. They're not here today, which means they died. And so that manna was wonderful. It was a gift from God. It sustained them for the day, but it didn't sustain them over the long haul because they're no longer here. They died. And he's saying, this is the bread, which of course he says, I am the bread. So he's saying, me, comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. That is, he's offering something that is no longer just temporal, but that is eternal. This is a reference not only to this kind of 
belief, but again, it's, it's against what they had an understanding in Second Temple Judaism of what saves. They had a wrong view of the law of the old covenant and what its purpose was. They thought they could save themselves by being obedient to the law in every nook and cranny without kind of going to Matthew, but you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, it's very clear that doesn't work. Jesus explains, you might think you've been obedient to the law, but then he goes into motivations into the heart and say, well, I've never murdered anyone, but have you had hate in your heart? And the answer for everyone in this room is yes. And so, yeah, no, you have not kept the Ten Commandments. You're guilty of them. You can't get to heaven by being obedient to the commandments. You need something that comes down from above. And that is meant to be something that gives life eternal, not just for a moment. So it's almost a little exposition here of, I think, of Hebrews chapter 10. Because you might be tempted to think doing good deeds, because how is that ever bad? But if you think they're salvific, you are wrong. And Hebrews really explains that. Hebrews chapter 10, the first 10 verses, looks at it this way. I think this is just instructive and worthy enough to look here. Because again, it's the same thing working in pictures uh, and metaphor in to say the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect for those who draw near. So the writer of Hebrews is saying something similar to say, Jesus is saying the manna in the wilderness is a picture of what is to come that God provides. But it's not going to keep you from dying. It's not that. But it points to something that will give you life and life eternal. And so he goes on, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? That is his point. You offer sacrifices year after year after year. If it was good, wouldn't you just stop? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of their sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, which is what their purpose was, to remind you you need a Savior. And he's saying, listen, they're pictures of things. They're shadows of the substance to come. You understand it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In fact, I think when you think about it, you go, well, yeah, that does seem silly, but it's a picture of the reality that we need a Savior who takes our sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offering and sacrifice for sin. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written to do your will, O God. I think the reference there is saying when Jesus comes in the world, he is saying, and he quotes the psalmist here, uh, Psalm chapter four, uh, Psalm 40, I believe. And he says, after saying above, sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, and saying they're not bad. Just don't try to make them be what they're not meant to be. And he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, not year after year, but once for all. This goes back to his sacrifice is something that is once. You don't need to keep getting manna each and every morning. His sacrifice is sufficient once and for all. That's what the writers of Hebrews and really the whole book of Hebrews is saying. That system was pointing to something, the whole Judaic system, but the fulfillment has come in 
Christ. So the belief in him leads to atonement that is permanent. It's how it leads to eternal life. But of course, there's gonna be confusion over the metaphor, the picture. Because what does he say? He says, verse what he's explicitly saying is, I am the living bread. He's getting the bread of life, the living bread, the living water. I've come down from heaven. Anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Then also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's saying, all right, let me get a little more explicit. But he builds on the metaphor because they can't understand. So he's going to build on the bread. And he say, okay, think of it this way. Me, I am the bread of life. You eat of me, you believe, you have life. But, of course, they're going to grumble, they're going to complain, and they're going to go, this is too difficult. It's confusing. It's a hard thing. What do you mean? Now, we might look at this and we go, we, we have a better understanding as believers, as Christians. You might think, we understand what he's talking about, but really... He's not so much even going towards his atonement, although he is. He's trying to get back to this big idea of belief. This is the issue. And you can see this as he builds. Look at verse 52. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're going, they're thinking of the material, just like Nicodemus. How can I get back into my mother's womb? Just like the woman at the well. How can you, you don't have a bucket and the well's really deep. How are you going to get this water? They're not completely understanding what he's saying. And they're beginning to argue. But Jesus is going to explain further. And he's going to take the picture. And he's going to build it out. And he's going to compare it to something that has come earlier. There's going to be some correspondence. I think that is helpful. He's going to say to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So he's taking back on the title, that title from Daniel, Son of Man. He's saying, unless you do this, you're not going to have life. And he's saying, eat of the flesh and drink of the blood. But look at 54. What does he mean by that? Does he literally mean that? I don't think so because he of all this figurative language. I am the bread of life come down from heaven. The example of the manna being a shadow of the substance. But he explains more explicitly 54. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And there you look and you think, that sounds familiar, right? Go back to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son, believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I think 54 and 40, they're, they're corresponding. He's simply using another picture to further explain what he said in 40. He who believes will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on the last day. His point here is to say, he who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, is a way of saying, he who believes in me. That's his issue. He's saying, you internalize it. You bring it inside and you make it yours and you trust and you believe he is the Christ, the son of God, which is John's overall massive message. He goes on, 55, why? For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. Which is to say, this is more than a reference to communion. Although I think the, the connection you could say is communion looks back at what Christ has done. He doesn't use the word flesh. He uses the word body. But it looks back. And this is also looking forward because this is obviously before the crucifixion. But it's looking towards union with Christ. Probably in a, sim a similar way to baptism. 
Baptism being united with Christ in his death and raised to life. There's a picture of that being um, immersed into water, dying, raising to life. This same here is saying this is a picture of what it looks like to believe and then being united with Christ. Because that's his, if you eat of the flesh, drink of the blood, which 56 is saying you should do. And I'd say that verse 40 is believe. If you believe in him, then he's saying, he who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him, which is you are united with him both in his death and his resurrection. Verse 57, as the living father sent me and I live because of my father, so he eats me, he also will live because of me, which as I said, this is where if you're taking notes or you're reading, it gets a little bit where you're going, okay, what are we trying to say? Just break it down as simple as possible. The living father sent me. So where does life come from? In the beginning was the word. Life comes because God gave life. He's talking about the Father, the only begotten Son, both fully God, different parts of the Trinity. But the living Father, he emphasized, the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, and that's belief in me, he also will live because of me. And he's rooting, he's saying, how do you know? How do you know he can fulfill this promise of life? Because he's saying, I had the life of the Father. He's saying, I am God, and God's the ultimate one that you can trust and have absolute confidence because Jesus roots us in his own deity. He is God, fully man, fully God. Therefore, he can deliver on his promise. Go back to 54. Why? His promise that you need, that he will raise you up on the last day. Because the main issue with the manna in the wilderness was they ate it, and they needed more the next day, the next day, but ultimately they died. And Jesus is offering something that is everlasting, that's rooted in the life of the Father that he gives his Son, that ultimately those who are united to him receive as well. It's pretty massive truths here as you look at these realities of what it is not only to believe, the necessity of the Father drawing, but also how to believe, or excuse me, how belief leads to eternal life. But it also leads to I think some major takeaways as we think about these truths. Um, and number one is the responsibility for decision to receive or reject the gospel message because it's not only very clear that the Father draws, but you go back to verse 37, there is a reality of those who come. And so there's a responsibility to believe. It's clear throughout John while also understanding the spirit blows where the spirit wills. Both those things are true. I think related to that, another takeaway is that God is in charge of drawing. If that is true, and I think it is true because it says it's true right here in John chapter 6, then you better cry out to him. Flip over to, if you want to turn with me or just listen, John, or James chapter 4. But in James chapter 4, it puts this this way, and I like it because it uses similar language of drawing here. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, But he gives a greater grace. And therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the, the emphasis here is on being humble, particularly dealing with conflict at the beginning of these verses. And he says, be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And James there, I think it has to do with Christian maturity is what does it look like to live out the Christian life? And he's saying, you need to live one a life that is humble and those who are humble, the Lord exalted. Those who draw near to him, he will draw near. And so lest we sit around and wonder, is he drawing me? That's not really the question from our perspective. The question is, are we going to believe or not believe? And the way that we understand, how do we know he's drawing? It's because you have a desire that he's given you to draw towards him. And I think as well, look at 637 again, the promise that if you come, he will never cast you out. All the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. You take this picture, you take this metaphor of eating. And there are lots of things someone can do for you. Um, Someone can cook for you. Probably this afternoon, if we go out to eat, I can buy food from someone who will make it for me. But no one's gonna eat it for me, right? If I'm gonna eat it, I'm gonna have to be the one who takes it and internalizes it. And I think that is the picture here. That's why he takes this picture and says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, is because this is a thing that you personally internalize and do by your believing. And if you do that, these are the promises that follow. One who looks at their life, repents of their sin and turns to Christ. They have the promise that Christ says, you come, the Father will not only um, keep you, He says, verse 39, that all he has given, the Father's given the Son, all of those. He says, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. And you have the promise then of fulfillment. How and what way is he bread that is life giving for eternal? Because he's connected to Christ or Christ is connected to the Father and through Christ in the gospel, we're connected to the Son. Let's pray. Father, Help us to see the beauty of this picture given here. Lord, even how it all represents what one does with who Christ is from his own words. Lord, we'll even see in the coming weeks, next week even, where he discusses this difficult saying with his disciples where all of those who say it's so difficult, they walk away and we are one's who love you and say with Peter, if we were to go, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Lord, we know that there is life and no other place because there is no one else who can promise life eternal than the one who is eternal, you. And so we ask now as we sing together that you would be honored and glorified not only this morning, but throughout this week that we might be reminded of the truth and the beauty of what it is through Christ to abide with you, no matter the depth or realities or difficulties of life. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.